Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you are of the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and even face masks on our Teespring store if you feel inclined. Make sure to check it out. Our guest today is marine ecologist Dr. Chuck Bangley. Though predominantly interested in migration, habitat use, and feeding, especially as they pertain to sharks, Dr. Bangley has also worked with environmental chemistry and fisheries management. After starting out with a Bachelor of Science from the University of Rhode Island, Dr. Bangley then earned a Master of Science from East Carolina University, as well as a Doctor of Philosophy in Coastal Resource Management, where he was also a research fellow with the Institute for Coastal Science and Policy. Next, he became a postdoctoral fellow with the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center, and now Dalhousie University is lucky to have Dr. Bangley as a postdoctoral researcher, where he models potential habitat for multiple fish species in the Upper Bay of Fundy. When not participating in this fascinating research, Dr. Bangley can also be found dropping hilarious as well as informative tweets and uploading articles to his blog, Southern Fried Science. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bangley. It's awesome that you could take the time to join me today and chat a bit about all the cool things that you do. All right. Glad to be on board. So we can hop right into some questions. And my first has to be, how are you liking being, and I'll quote from your Twitter profile here, a temporary Canadian out here on the East Coast? And for those who don't know, your Twitter is a wonderful smattering of thought-provoking science and research, as well as bashing the infamous Nova Scotia weather, like we're having today. Oh, yeah. it's uh, it, it definitely became a work-from-home day when I woke up and looked outside the window. But um, no, generally, I'm, I'm actually really liking it up here. In fact, I've uh, recently signed on for two more years at Dell, so I'll be uh, around for a bit, enjoying the completely erratic weather. Um, but it's, uh, no, it's, it's a beauty. It's there's so much natural beauty around here. Uh, this Halifax is a great city. Um, it's just small enough to be kind of like neighborly, but big enough to have a lot of stuff going on. And uh, people seem nice. People seem very nice here. There's like Canadian nice, and then apparently there's like Nova Scotia nice. And that has definitely been my experience. That's awesome. That's good to hear. So at the Oceans Conference in 2022, you gave a on species distribution modeling in the sustainable blue economy session. And I'm wondering if you can talk us through a bit about what species distribution modeling is and its applications to fishery science and management. Yeah, um, f- species distribution modeling, at least in the, um, the context of fish, I've been calling it basically fish forecasting, but it doesn't necessarily have to be fish, I suppose. They're just the best ones. Yeah, you essentially get an idea of the relationships between uh, the movement patterns, the distribution patterns, uh, the presence or absence of a given species and the prevailing environmental conditions. So over the course of either sampling or doing what we do, going through telemetry detections and matching them up with environmental data from the same areas, you kind of get an idea of under, for example, what temperature ranges you'll see the species and what temperature ranges you won't. From that, you can build a predictive model that essentially gives you the odds of that species showing up given the environmental conditions. So the hope is that at some point, if you have no capacity to sample for the animal or detect the animal directly, you could still get a, um, a reasonable, educated estimate of how likely that animal is to show up if all you know are things like the depth, the temperature, um, and other environmental features like that. A lot of people don't necessarily think about coding in computers at first thought when you consider marine management and fishery science, but I think 
the application of that is so interesting. And one of the things actually that I'm most excited to chat with you about is R. So the more I work with and talk to professionals in the marine sector and just in biology in general, the further I become under the impression that R is such a valuable skill to have in this field. And I'm wondering if you can speak to this at all and about some of the projects that you've worked on with R sort of along the same vein as what you were talking about with species distribution modeling. Yeah, I, uh, I resisted R for a while. Um, <laughs> I tried really hard. Um, well, I was, uh, when I was in grad school, that was about when R was kind of, that was about when R was kind of coming to the forefront as the, uh, the primary um, coding language that people are using. I actually originally learned SAS as a very early master's student um, and then switched to, uh, to Jump, which is like the graphical version of SAS because I didn't want to bother with a bunch of coding. But eventually kind of like started hitting the limit of the, the pre-built-in stuff that was there, especially working with highly migratory species and sharks in particular. Like, you know, as soon as you're working with ecological data, the data distributions and everything get weird. Then they get weirder when you make it a fish. Then they get weirder when you make it a big fish that moves around a lot. So I, was, uh, I, I definitely needed something that was uh, a lot more flexible. And um, yeah, that was kind of what got me into R, but it was, it was very much like I think a lot of ecologists learn R, um, where it was kind of getting a very brief crash course introduction from people at the time. I mean, this was like 2011, 2012. So it was still kind of, there, there wasn't too much of like a formalized infrastructure at that point for teaching people this stuff. I had never been exposed to it at all when I was an undergrad, and I'm not even sure it existed when I was an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a lot of learning the basics, like just enough to get into trouble, essentially. And then um, basically Googling error messages and how to do things and kind of cobbling together. Like if you were if you were to make the analogy, a lot of people do that, like, you know, learning coding is like learning the language. I basically was just learning like one phrase after another that was like answering the immediate problem. So it was <laughs> so I, uh, I would still describe my coding style as um, knows a few very advanced phrases and a lot of vocabulary, but has no idea how the grammar works. But uh, fortunately, I've had I've had great friends who have kind of like coached me through a lot of this stuff. And, um, you know, it's I grumble about it. The really fun thing about Twitter is if you put the hashtag R stats in there, there's like automatic bots that I think are officially associated with R um, that will retweet it. And they're just constantly retweeting complaints. I love it. But yeah, that's the, and sometimes that even works. Sometimes just screaming into the internet void will get somebody to respond to you. I'm, I'm achieving a better balance with it now. There are far fewer days where I end up like screaming at the computer because I don't understand what just happened. But now it's, uh, now it's at a point where I'm, you know, I've got modules in my own classes that I'm teaching at Dow that teach kids are at this point. But um, yeah, that's, uh, it's, that's been my growth, I guess, in the R world. I'm trying to hone my skills in R. And sometimes, like you said, I love it. And sometimes I'm ready to throw my computer into the Bedford Basin. And I feel like it's best described by like, if a code works, if I can get one line to work, I'm like, I could hack anything. Let's make a video game. Like, this is awesome. And then I have like a comma in the wrong spot and my whole life falls apart. And it's just... Yeah. My favorite's when you hit the level where it stops throwing error messages because you gave it something that technically works, but it does the wrong thing. (laughs) So that that in ways is like even more frustrating. It's like, you know, you get the complete incomprehensible error message, but at least you can Google that if it just does the wrong thing. Like to this end, to continue along, I guess, the Arvane, I'm curious as to whether you have any advice or resources for folks who might be interested in developing their R skills or learning how to use it. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the nice things about getting started with it now is like I was kind of getting into it as it was coming up. 
it, it was like in the span of a couple of years there, like 2010 to 2012, where it was like, you hardly ever heard about using somebody using R. And then by like two years later, it was like, everybody was using it and you had to know how to use it. Um, and it's had impressive staying power, which really speaks to how versatile and powerful tool it really is. But now there, yeah, now there are definitely a lot more resources for learning it. There's actually a, a great person um, locally, Daniel Quinn, who runs um, our workshops. So definitely look her up and, you know, maybe try to listen in on one of her things. Every time I talk to her, I, I learn something new and basic about R. <laughs> so it's like, I'm, I'm like, oh, wait, that's how you conjugate a verb in R. <laughs> and there's a lot of like good learning resources and things too. There's a lot of books published online. Things like Stack Exchange and stuff like that are a lot more thorough now than they used to be. It used to be like a badge of honor when you found like the end of Stack Exchange. <laughs> you Googled it and nothing came up. <laughs> but yeah, and it's uh, and, and packages themselves, like people are, are getting more into making the packages a bit more user friendly. Um, you packages out there that will actually flat out tell you helpful error messages um, and make suggestions and things like that. So it's, uh, yeah, I'd say... You know, it's it's a little easier to get your to dip your toe into it these days. It's cool to hear that the accessibility of it is sort of on the rise, especially as you said, more and more people are having to know how to use it to get somewhere in this field. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that kind of needs to happen as it's becoming more widespread, but I'm glad it's mm. happening. So I'm curious about your love of spiny dogfish. I feel like anyone that knows of you is aware of this. And I also love your 2015 paper called Who Let the Dogfish Out? Very creative. <laughs> I wish I could claim credit for that. That was actually my um, my co-author, and I think the first author on that paper, uh, Andrea Delapa. Um, he was working in my in the same lab I was um, at East Carolina, and yeah, we had been involved in various different spiny dogfish projects. He was more on the tracking and telemetry side, and a lot of my early telemetry research was basically helping him out. And I was doing um, feeding habits stuff at that point. But yeah, we uh, we got into there were a lot of things going on with spiny dogfish fishery management at the time. So we decided to put together a nice little review about the, the state of dogfish at that point. And he came up with the title and I basically was like, not going to stop him doing that one. I was, he, he was like, how about who let the dogfish out? And I said, yes. <laughs> There's nothing better than a, a punny academic paper title in my opinion. Oh yeah. Yeah. Some people kind of like turn their noses up at it, but I'm like, bring the pun. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we're on the same page with that one. So was this sort of work, what gave rise to this admiration of Sardi dogfish or what led to you becoming such a dogfish lover? Um, I think part of it was kind of working directly with them. They were the first uh, shark species that I ever got to to really focus research on. Um, and I, like, I'd seen them, I, I'd like caught them and stuff out fishing off of Rhode Island when I was growing up and things like that. And I'd seen smooth dogfish and sandbar sharks and stuff before too. But yeah, the, uh, the more I worked with the dogfish, the more fascinating they were. Um, they're also kind of adorable. You know, they've got the big eyes and the long noses and everything. But they, uh, they're just fascinating animals. And they kind of get... Um, they kind of they kind of get forgotten because they're relatively common on the spectrum of sharks, especially when you get up into like kind of cooler northern waters. They're uh, I mean you can catch them by the hundreds. They're highly social, which is one of the weird ways that they're somewhat different from a lot of other shark species. Is that like they literally school and uh, they're like a deep sea. Their their whole rest of their family is primarily deep sea species, and they happen to be like the representatives that came up and decided to stay in the shallows. <laughs> representatives, um, that's hilarious. Yeah. But yeah, just like the more I dug into them, the more fascinating they were. And it's it's kind of like, you know, 
it's kind of a shame they're so un- underestimated because they really are just like super fascinating species. Um, so I'm happy that they're in my my roster of species for the, uh, the Bay of Fundy project now. So speaking of that paper, who let the dogfish out, you were a part of a management review and a socioeconomic study on spiny dogfish fisheries. And I'm curious as to whether this was a new experience for you moving from really natural science heavy work into a bit more of the social science and human dimensions of marine management. And if there were any big takeaways from this project for you. Oh man, dogfish fishery management was super fascinating at the time. Um, And I I say that not just as somebody who's just fascinated by anything involving dogfish, but, um, (laughs) but it was kind of like, it it was coming off the heels of about 2000, um, 2008, 2009, uh, people were noticing dips in, um, spiny dogfish numbers in some of the fishery independent surveys and in some of the catch data as well. Um, they're the only species of shark in North American waters that's really fished at a level that's comparable to bony fish. Um, because again, they can be extremely common where they show up and they can show up in extremely large numbers sometimes too. I've seen schools of dogfish break trawl nets. Yeah. So they, but they're also regarded as a, a pest by uh, fishermen a lot of the time as well, because they will very readily snatch fish off hooks out of nets, get snarled in the gear themselves. Um, and there's never just one. Um, so there's, if like one dogfish shows up then um, you know, there's, there's like stuff in like, you know, Bigel and Schroeder's fishes, the Gulf of Maine, that's talking about how fish will like start seeing dogfish come up on the lines and just pull the gear and leave because they know that's all they're going to run into and any extra fish they get in there are going to be all chomped up and stuff. But yeah, they, so there were these, the science side was finding these dips in the, uh, the population. Um, they were still regarded as a f- uh, pest in the fishery. So the, the idea that Noah was then proposing to, uh, to lower the quotas and things like that was, was met by extreme skepticism, I would say, from the, uh, the commercial fishing industry. So there was a lot of, uh, there were actually, for, for like the first, maybe only time ever, there were a lot of research dollars being thrown at spiny dogfish. They, uh, and, and there were a lot of projects, uh, that was kind of how my advisor, Dr. Roger Rolfson at East Carolina got involved. He was talking to some fishermen who worked out in the Outer Banks, uh, Dewey Hemelwright and Chris Hickman, who had questions about dogfish numbers out there because that's the, the main overwintering ground. So from that, Roger got involved in, in dogfish stuff. And from day one, when I was working at ECU, we were on projects that involved uh, working directly with fishermen in the planning stages, um, in the implementation, doing all the field work. Um, they had a lot of input in how we were looking at the analysis. And we made some really fascinating findings. So the review kind of came out of our conversations with uh, some of our, our fishermen collaborators. And yeah, we went through, I mean, the spec, the time span that we spent, the, that we covered on that review went from the initial kind of like signs that there might be a crash if something doesn't happen up to uh, the point where I think by 2012, 2013, dogfish populations were being proposed for listing, listing is like sustainable under the Marine Stewardship Council, because the, you know, the, it seemed like the populations had stabilized, that the management was working out well, um, that there was buy-in from the industry by that point. So it, uh, you know, it seems like a conservation success story. And to this day, you know, the, there are a couple dogfish populations that are among the very, very few certified sustainable shark fisheries. There's a whole other project about the Pacific dogfish, but you probably have to talk to David Schiffman about that one. Yeah, it was just a really interesting time. And, and I think it was because we had kind of a front row seat talking to the, uh, the people in these fishing communities just while we were out doing our normal field work that it's, uh, you know, it kind of got us thinking about how this all works. 
And Andrea had a couple other papers that looked, did like a network analysis of the dogfish trade and saw who was buying, who was selling and all that. Um, so he definitely like went off in a very kind of policy and industry analysis direction. That's really fascinating. Did you find that a lot of what you were seeing in terms of like natural science and data collection and sort of empirical numbers was corroborated by what you were hearing from the commercial, commercial, excuse me, fisheries industry? Or did you find there was a bit of like a divergence there? I think we found, the main thing we found is that um, this species is a lot less well understood than people thought it was at the time. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're relatively common. They come up a lot in surveys and stuff, but I mean, they do occupy areas other than where surveys and even fishing activity uh, activity are taking place. And that was kind of some of the, some of the things that the, um, the acoustic telemetry work we, we were involved with uh, was finding that there were kind of inshore offshore movements in places where they thought that part of the population was uh, actually part of the North South migration that goes down to North Carolina. So it, it turned out that the, uh, you know, the, the migratory patterns and the way the population kind of subdivides itself for dogfish was a lot more complicated than the kind of, one giant mass of dogfish from like Newfoundland down to South Carolina paradigm was being, that was being uh, used before that. That was the main takeaway. I mean, we corroborated some things that the researchers were finding. We corroborated some things that the fishermen were saying. And I think overall we were just like, people should look at this species a bit more um, if it's going to continue to be important for fisheries and fisheries management. It's so cool that in this paper, you really looked at integrating what fishers and actual harvesters and people that work with these species every day are saying into policy and into management reports. And I think that's a cool future that we might have to look at as marine managers and people that sort of guide and inform decisions and made around conservation and, and total level catch and stuff is actually using the local perspectives and knowledge from people that work with these species every day. So I think that's really cool. And that's probably like the coolest part of this paper for me was sort of integrating the, the industry and the academia. So out of personal interest, I worked a bit on a gastric lavage project with the Canadian Rivers Institute at UMB with striped bass up in New Brunswick. And I saw that you worked on a similar stomach tube lavage project, of course, with spiny dogfish. And I was wondering if you can walk our listeners through this type of sampling and why we use it. And I'm wondering if you were looking for anything specific when you worked on this project or were just excited to see what spiny dogfish are eating. Yeah, I mean, um, so the main the main impetus behind that project was, again, it was very much um, in talking with some of these uh, these Outer Banks fishermen um, about some of the issues they were concerned with. And of course, the like one of the big one of the big hypotheses for the collapse or the distribution shift of things like cod and haddock and pollock and uh, classic groundfish species is that they uh, they were overfished to a point where dogfish were able to kind of fill their niche and dogfish are also capable of eating fish larger than themselves. So they have the ability to directly prey on things like large cod sometimes. So that was, you know, the the main focus of that diet study was to to try to get some diet sampling in specifically focused on the overwintering habitat in North Carolina, because that's, you know, they're, the NOAA trawl survey goes that far, but doesn't really have, doesn't really focus in that area. And if you kind of narrow down just the samples that they have from North Carolina waters, it's, it's really kind of a drop in the bucket compared to what they get from the rest of the coast. So we wanted to focus really hard on um, North Carolina waters. We went on a few different cruises. I did go out on the NOAA trawl cruise for that, but also went out on a, um, a cruise that was going on at the time uh, called the Cooperative Winter Tagging Cruise. Um, which was actually geared primarily towards 
uh, tagging straight bass, but they were pulling trawls for it. So they decided to just take data on the other stuff. And the first year, uh, it happened at the same time I was out on the NOAA trawl survey. So a, uh, a lab mate of mine went out and got samples. But a couple years after that, I managed to get out on the winter tagging cruise itself. And um, yeah, basically, uh, I wanted to use from like a and my own personal kind of like animal welfare interest, I wanted to try to use a non-lethal method with the idea being that like, you know, A, you minimize the mortality from scientific sampling, uh, but B, because dogfish are, you know, they're a small shark, you could potentially test this method out on them uh, because they're exceptionally hardy. Um, so they can get a tube rammed down their throat and throw up half their stomach contents <laughs> and swim away just fine. Uh, but, you know, it was, it, they could make an, a good test bed using this method on more sensitive species. Um, so juveniles of things like reef sharks or hammerheads or something like that. Yeah, so I, I wanted to make sure that got out and got published so that people could then refer to it, specifically when they were looking at doing this on Elasabranx, but we've also seen um, some people working with bony fish cite this paper as well. But yeah, it was actually within, that was my very first paper. <laughs> so, and you can probably tell by the way it's written. But um, yeah, it was it was cool to get that out there. And it was it was even cooler a couple of years later when uh, I was running into people at the American Elasmerine Society conferences that had like read it and were trying it out on like juvenile lemon sharks or stingrays or something like that. We did, uh, we did find out that at least for dogfish, it was, um, if, as long as you match the tube um, well enough to like the width of the mouth, you could reliably get over 90% of the uh, the stomach contents out. Occasionally there are like big things that would get like stuck in the tube. <laughs> you'd have to like, you'd have to like kind of pull the tube out, like shove the big thing all the way through and then, uh, and then maybe try another couple flushes. But yeah, um, we were actually able to re revisit that method looking at the, uh, the dogfish digestion rate with captive animals. We were able to get multiple trials out of the same animals because we were using this non-lethal um, basically stomach pumping method. Did you find anything crazy like trash or plastic or like a rock or are they like tiger sharks and that they'll eat absolutely anything? They're, um, they're very generalist predators. We found, found we've, so it was actually, we found uh, a bunch of krill in the, um, in the males, which are primarily distributed way offshore. So the most dogfish that you see like coming up inshore are, are actually mature females. So the, the population segregates really strongly by, by sex and by size. So you see the males and a lot of the really small ones kind of way out near the like continental shelf break. They're like the little ones especially are basically planktivores. Like they're they're slurping down euphausids and comb jellies and all kinds of other stuff. Um, it's it, it actually I figured this out because I was finding these little black dots in the stomachs of some of the smaller ones and a bunch of the males, and I was like, what are these? And then eventually like an actual intact like like shrimp came out. Um, <laughs> it was like, wait, these are the eyeballs. We're eating hundreds of these. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was kind of a cool little epiphany. And then uh, the the mature females that are closer inshore, I mean, they they're eating whatever is available in the local environment. You can actually find, you could probably infer quite a bit about what they're up to from what they're eating. There was one that had a seahorse in its stomach, which implies some very near shore uh, travel on the part of that shark. There were a couple that actually had chunks of striped bass that had intact enough scales that we could go back and like kind of count the growth rings and estimate the um, the size of the straight bass. And they were definitely, the bass were definitely larger than the dogfish that they ended up in the stomachs of. So they, uh, you know, we didn't find that often, but we found it more than once and in like different sampling trips and stuff too. So it's, it seems to be a thing that occasionally happens where they'll, I mean, I, I don't know if they pulled that bass off a hook or what, or if they just decided to 
gang up on one at one point, but yeah, they are definitely, we found some rather large flounder in there as well. And definitely evidence that they could kind of dismember larger prey. Um, there were even some absolutely massive menhaden that were in a few of their stomachs. Like they could not have swallowed that fish whole. It's wild what you can find out just by what something eats. We were, we were getting into, um, we were getting into like gory detail with it. Like we were, we were measuring like the partial pieces and then trying to like compare them with like measurements of whole animals to figure out how big they, to like figure out how big the prey would have been. They're, they're pretty intense little predators. So I want to go back a little bit to commercial fisheries and the spiny dogfish fishery, actually. So is there like a market incentive or like a consumption associated with spiny dogfish? Or is it more, have you seen a bycatch situation with this species? Yeah, the dogfish are the dogfish are an interesting beast when it comes to fisheries, uh, especially in the U.S., um, they are a, they're popular in Europe, so they they actually are make they make up the majority of fish and chips um, in the uh, in the UK, for example. They start that started out with them originally using it um, as a substitute for cod when their own cod populations crashed. And I think it's like it's reached a point where it's just like that's what whole generations of like people in the UK have grown up expecting fish and chips to taste like. Um, I still haven't eaten spiny dogfish. At least not knowingly. <laughs> is, is this a, a known thing that people go and order spiny dogfish? Or is it more something that's slid out on a plate? It's, uh, it goes under a bunch of different names. So there were, there were attempts to get a, a, a market for dogfish meat going in the U.S. by calling it Cape Shark. And then in the U.K., it's got a bunch of different names. It's like rock salmon and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's like grayfish is one of them or something like that, which just does not sound that appetizing. Like, I feel like dogfish would actually be a more appetizing name than grayfish, but um, just implies it's gone bad or something. But apparently it's a very, it's a very solid, like white meat. Like it stands in well um, with, in things like fish and chips and, and stuff like that. There's also, uh, there's a popular bar snack in Germany called Schillerwachen. Um, that is the, uh, the belly flaps of dogfish. Wow. Um People will use the the skin for leather as well. Like the the fins do find their way into the fin trade, although they're not like the the highest value fins out there. And um, yeah, it's like it's actually kind of fascinating. Like in a lot of cases, this whole animal gets utilized in some way. But yeah, it's never they've had a hard time getting dogfish like consumption to really um, to really kick off in the U.S. There have been a few efforts that have gone into that. They've there's been some some success on a small scale kind of promoting it as like a local, like underutilized species. So there were, uh, there's actually a, there's a place in, in Rhode Island. The last time I went to visit there that I, I tried to have spiny dogfish at, they were advertising. They had like the fish sandwich was dogfish that day. So I was like, that's it. I'm going to try it. And, um, <laughs> and I got there and they had sold out of the dogfish and they had haddock instead. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> never been so disappointed the fish sandwich was still great though it was a good good spot um so you do see things like dogfish and skates and things being promoted as kind of like a, a you know mix it up a little bit seafood item um and skate wings in particular have started showing up in like fancy places which is just amazing to me but um yeah it's uh, there have been some like efforts to get it put into like school lunches and things like that um to create a market that way but yeah it's uh it doesn't seem to sell much domestically. It kind of depends on having those European markets to justify having a commercial scale fishery. Do you think that some of the struggle with getting this sort of market off of the ground is tied to maybe a social impact or potentially an attitude in the global north towards shark fisheries in general and that being sort of a taboo, there's no way it can be sustainable kind of boycotting 
a shark fishery situation? Yeah, that's uh, I've I've heard that come up, and actually, it was um, there was a, a project that I worked with uh, with David Shiffman and Catherine McDonald out on the West Coast um, to uh, which is in review. Finally, it's going to come out someday. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that was one of the things that that came up in conversations out there, and I've seen it come up with East Coast fishermen as well. Um, this I this I not necessarily specifically in the context of dogfish fisheries, but in like shark fisheries in general. Right. Um, like, you know, from a, a strictly we're sustaining these populations and they're actually like rebounding in a lot of cases, um, standpoint, like shark fishery management in the U S has been fairly successful. There are like, especially among some of the small coastal shark species, there are species that definitely have like stable and increasing populations. And even some of the species that have been in trouble and have been prohibited for landing for a while are starting to, to show some signs of life, but they, so like you know, on, on paper, like the, the U S shark fisheries are, you know, extremely clean, you know, they have to land the whole animal. They're under very strict quotas. Um, you know, as far as observer coverage goes, it's usually halfway decent in the shark fishery, but then you have things like they, they can't sell like fins from the sharks they land domestically anymore. Um, and a lot of that's because of like the social perception of shark fisheries. So there's this idea that like, you know, a shark fishery is a big industrial boat just pulling up sharks, hacking the fins off and throwing the body back overboard. And it's just not how it works in the U.S. But it's, um, yeah, we did see that with, uh, that did come up in the context of dogfish on the West Coast. Um, I don't know how, I don't know how much that applies to dogfish in particular, because a lot of the same people that are really concerned about shark fisheries oftentimes are like just learning that dogfish are in fact sharks. (laughs) And they're like, I've seen some, you know, some, some conservation groups, um, propose like no shark fishing ever except dogfish. Um, so it's like, um, so, you know, dogfish are still kind of like held apart of other, from other sharks in a lot of ways, but I mean, it's, it's a possibility. I don't know how influential it is, especially when compared to things like market forces. Um, certainly the, the social, um, the social license aspect of it comes up a lot more in, fisheries for like larger, more charismatic sharks. Mm. It's so interesting to hear the term charismatic as in like charismatic megafauna and sharks go together because for so long there was like the Spielberg jaws, all sharks must die. And now there's like, Oh, but look at this great white. We must do everything like to save. Yeah. It's been, it's been wild to see that shift just like in my lifetime. Like I, I think like people weren't even talking about potential like, you know, problems with shark populations getting too low until like the nineties, like, and even, even then it wasn't really like a a mainstream thing to talk about until the mid two thousands. And then it kind of like exploded. Um, and now it's almost like, you know, I've, I've heard people joke that sharks are the new dolphins and in some ways it's true. One of my best friends got me a bracelet for Christmas and now I can track a shark named Eddie. So I think going back to social license and social perception, like seeing people that have previously said, I'm never swimming again, in Nova Scotia because there's sharks share like this shark is named X and this is where she is. It's just such a personification that I feel that's, it's completely changing people's opinions. It's wild. Yeah. It's, it can be a blessing. I think it's mostly a blessing, but like things like, you know, being able to track a named shark, like I I've got the shark tracker app on my phone too. Um, (laughs) I've got a great story about uh, doing some field work with shark tracker app, but uh, (laughs) the, But yeah, it's, uh, you know, being able to do that, being able to see like the habits of these animals and stuff, like it kind of like lifts the veil a bit. It's, you know, part of the, 
part of the reason Jaws is such an effectively scary movie, um, and I'm definitely in the camp that Jaws is a great movie. Me too. Is that like you don't see much of the shark, like, and that was kind of previous to having this kind of technology and this kind of social media available around it. That was kind of how people perceive sharks. It's like this thing that's hidden in the ocean until it comes up. Dorsal you. fin. Yeah, it's like all you see is the fin, and then all of a sudden, like somebody's pulled under. Um, you know, seeing that there there is in fact quite a bit more that they actually do. I think opened a lot of people's eyes. I think that was a big, I think that was a big part of the big push for shark conservation. So it kind of speaks to like the, the like power of the stories you can tell with like tracking technology and telemetry studies and things like that. Like you can really dig into an animal's life essentially. Um, and I, I run into it too. Like I, I'll see like a tag number come up on like an acoustic receiver and I'll be like, Oh, you're back. <laughs> Before we stray too far from commercial fisheries and fish consumption, I have been dying to interview somebody for this podcast in light of Impact 5. And I'm sure you've heard of Sylvia Earle's quote, Jane Goodall doesn't eat chimpanzees. And I'm wondering if you're comfortable with reflecting a bit on that, what that means for fisheries management as a whole, and whether or not we should be considering, should people all around the world give up eating fish in the name of conservation. Well, there's, I mean, there's, there's kind of a gallows humor um, thing in, in fisheries ecology where it's like, you don't really know your study species leave eaten it at least once, but uh, you know, um, at the same time, like, you know, the captive dogfish study, they all got names and backstories and I made sure they all got released alive and good health. So, <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I think it's, I don't know. It's, it's a very, privileged position to take to just say that like no one should ever eat fish ever um like even in north america there are communities that are like almost entirely sustained by like the protein they get from from fishing from the ocean um so it's like you know it's 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 not like they can just it's not like people all around the world can just suddenly turn around and like i don't know have, find find a good tasting veggie burger or something um so i mean you know to the extent that like people in North America have the ability to make food choices like that. Like, yeah, make more responsible choices, but sometimes the responsible choice is fish. I mean, there are papers out there showing that like things like oyster farming can actually be a net carbon sink. So it's like, you know, you get tasty oysters and then on top of that, you're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. So it's, uh, you know, it's paying attention to the, the benefits and consequences of whatever you're supporting at that point. But I think it's like, it's, I would not, I personally would not support like a blanket, like no one should ever eat fish ever um, mm -hmm. kind of argument because A, it's just not realistic everywhere. And B, I think it oversimplifies a, uh, it oversimplifies like the complicated problems that come out of like the whole food system. Cause it's not like, you know, farming or something doesn't also cause environmental damage if done at like too large a scale or too irresponsibly. Thank you for reflecting on that. So on your blog, which I've previously mentioned a bit earlier, you shared a post called Mapping a Smoother Fishery for Smooth Dogfish. And it's an interesting read that not only talks about species distribution, tagging, and telemetry, but also the Bayesian approach to statistics and data analysis that you used. In this paper, you refer to a John Shepard quote, managing fisheries is hard. It's like managing a forest in which the trees are invisible and keep moving around. I'm wondering if you can explain here for our listeners a bit more about what that means and some of the challenges that you have experienced with contemporary marine management concerns. Yeah, it's, uh, oh man, this goes right into the stuff I'm working on right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why, you know, we do things like species distribution modeling is because we can't always track all those those hidden trees moving around in the ocean. But so we it kind of like narrows the uh, the haystack that you're looking for the needle in 
but I mean, it's, it's not just fisheries management. I mean, there's things, there are things like offshore development that people are, you know, concerned, rightfully concerned about the overlap between like animal movements and distributions and places where there's going to be, you know, development on the continental shelf on a scale that's never happened before. I say this as somebody who's like, you know, very supportive of renewable energy, but it needs to be done responsibly. The main driver of the uh, the project I'm working on right now in the Upper Bay of Fundy is actually the uh, the efforts to create a tidal power industry. Um, so I'm working really closely with, actually one of the fascinating things about it is just how many different groups I'm working with on this. But I'm working really closely with, with FORCE, the Fundy Ocean Research Center for Energy. And they kind of act as the stewards of the this uh, this patch of water in Minas Passage um, that's being referred to as like the tidal demonstration site. And it's basically like a rectangle over a like volcanic plateau in kind of close to the North Shore of Minas Passage. Um, in and of itself, a really fascinating area. So it's a big flat table that comes off of like a really like deep and pretty complex bottom. Um, and that's the idea is that that's going to be where the first like demonstration scale tidal power devices are going to be. Um, I say devices because not all of them are like spinning blade turbines. So there's a few different uh, a few different companies involved. We're uh, we're working with the uh, the Mi'kmaq Conservation Group. Um, we've been collaborating with some local fishers. Um, so it's uh, you know trying to make sure that we're getting as thorough an idea of what the environment is like out there as possible. Um, but it's a challenging environment to do the kind of traditional fisheries uh, fisheries management surveys that you would do. So it's you know you imagine you've got a patch of water that's going five meters a second, it's going to get uh, pretty dicey to pull a trawl net. Um, although apparently people have. We did dig up a, a really old document <laughs> where somebody tried this um, but uh, and, and lived to tell the tale and even got data. But uh, <laughs> because there's a lot of acoustic tracking activity going on in the upper Bay of Fundy, um, and there's a lot of receivers in Minus Pass in particular, um, because the ocean tracking network has a whole array going across. Uh, Force has receivers within their area as well. We've actually um, reconfigured their array to uh, to be kind of a, a straight um, gate going at least halfway across the passage at this point. Because the idea is we want to get an idea of fish detections inside the demonstration site, but also outside of it as well. Just pulling in all kinds of environmental data, a lot of hydrodynamic data. This is the first time I've had to work with things like water vorticity and current velocity and that kind of stuff. And that's that seemed, those are turning out to be some really significant drivers of fish distribution in the system. But the idea is that you can take a species distribution model um, and look at the mapped species distribution and make decisions on site selection, um, you know, whether or not you need the device to be operating or not operating under certain conditions or at certain times of the year. And we're looking at like a really broad array of species as well. So we've, we've started with striped bass. Um, striped bass is kind of the closest to being, to, to having a, a working model. And also people have tagged the heck out of them in, <laughs> in my space. And it's a lot of tag striped bass out there still. But then we, uh, we also have, uh, we've, we've actually had pretty good success working with, with MCG and with um, collaborators at Acadia University, um, tagging alewife herring and American shad. So we've got the, uh, the kind of smaller schooling prey species, dogfish are in the mix. We've got, uh, we've, we've got some data on American eels and, um, and tomcod, so species that are very important to, uh, to big block communities. Trying to think of, I know there's always something I miss. Uh, Inner Bay of Funny Salmon. <laughs> We've got those in there. What a one to miss. <laughs> just, a, just a little thing called Atlantic Salmon. Um, and uh, white sharks. Uh, we've been able to get access to white shark data too. And that's all been um, facilitated by working with OTN to get data agreements with um, a lot of the groups that have been 
out there doing these telemetry studies. So it's a, it's a huge collaborative project. I think it's for a good cause. Um, I'm hoping we're learning a ton about how fish move around in this system. And the, uh, the hope is that this will provide like a nice standardized way of, you know, assessing the potential impact of a device that goes in the water there. So for a little bit of context for our listeners, Fundy has the highest tides in the world. So a great site to potentially develop tidal energy here in Nova Scotia. However, there are some movements that have kind of been coined the grinding Nemo. Oh yeah, I've seen the I've seen the, the cartoon. <laughs> so I'm curious as to from your perspective, if you think that there is a future, a safe future for tidal development in Nova Scotia that doesn't lead to unprecedented marine mammal, bird, and fish mortalities due to, as you said, tidal development infrastructure like barrages, turbine strikes, et cetera, et cetera, and the grinding of Nemo per se. Yeah. And I think there's um, there is a perception out there that like the kinds of things that would be going into Minas Passage would be analogous to like the Annapolis tidal barrage, which blocks off the whole like opening, and obviously like fish have to have to go all the way through it um, to get past it. Um, like these would be individual devices that are like pull, like spaced out in the passage. So even in that even at that level, like you're not you're not you're not talking about like a a solid wall of like fans that you have to go through. I mean, the idea is that this kind of information would go into things like, you know, do we, we know the salmon are migrating through at this time of year? Do we maybe turn the turbine off for a couple of days or something? So, and then it can go into uh, mitigation strategies. It can go into maybe even device design, device deployment, um, all those planning stages. Um, and it's ultimately like, you know, I'm, I, can, I can advocate for what I think out of the, um, the findings, but it does ultimately come down to a decision between the developers and DFO as the manager. So it's, uh, we're providing the information that will hopefully allow for a very educated assessment of that. I think there's like a perception of like some, like, res- as you said, like a wall of just like turbine blades and it's like resonant evil and like fish are going through and just being like, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's like, um, even the ones that look like a wind turbine underwater, like spin, when you see them in action, they spin fairly slowly. Um, mm-hmm. So like the big, the, the really big ones, like they're not, they're spinning at a speed that like might push a fish out of the way, but isn't going to like slice it in half or anything. Right. Um, and then there are other like kind of, kind of unique designs. There's one that's like a giant like paddle wheel basically um, that sits at the surface. You know, there have been some that are like analogous to like the, the like wave um, energy designs that are like a series of buoys that are kind of like going up and down. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not all, it's not all giant like, you know, spinning blades of death and stuff in there. There's like quite a diversity of um, devices that are going in. And I don't know that anything could be necessarily defined as like a spinning blade of death at this point. But yeah, it's, so it's, you know, there, there's a lot going on there. I stick to the fish, but um, yeah, it's, it's cool to be working on a project that is not only bring up a lot of really interesting, like ecological findings, but also kind of has a direct applied use that's potentially helping a, a whole industry develop responsibly. It sounds like there's a lot of like adaptive management strategies at play, which is really hopeful. I hope. Yeah. And I think like the, I mean, the reason we're going, we're looking at like nine different species is that, you know, it's going to be, it's good. The risk profiles are going to vary by species. You're going to have species that are only coming in and out of the passage at very specific times of the year because they're just using it as a migratory corridor. Um, And then you're going to have species that kind of linger in the passage for a while. You're going to have species that move back and forth in and out of the passage multiple times. It's going to be complicated. <laughs> it's going to, it'll be very interesting to see how, 
you know, things are prioritized as, as this reaches the stages where it's being used to make decisions. I definitely look forward to following it. So something that I've been asking each of my guests as a young scientist myself, but also for our listeners, is what advice would you have for someone entering the marine sector or who wants to break into this field? Oh, man. Um, I guess the uh, one of the things that's been big for me, I guess, is just like meeting people. Um, so getting out there, doing a bit of networking, talking to people that have experience in the field, like that's going to a lot of times teach you more than, you know, reading articles or following up on the literature and, and things like that. Um, so like any, any opportunity you have to kind of interact with people working in research, people working in fisheries management, even people in the, in the fish, fishing industry, like, you know, fishermen tell great stories. And, uh, and a lot of them are, are really cool about working with, um, with researchers as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, getting to talk to people, getting that experience, um, because everybody like, there's so many different paths into, into this field. Um, and what works in one place or for one person is not necessarily going to work somewhere else. So it's good to get an idea of what's going on. But yeah, I, I think for me personally, just like just meeting people, knocking ideas around with them and stuff like that has been the most helpful thing for me getting started in this career. Thank you. So my last question, I'm really interested in the 2022 publication you were on that asks what professional scientific societies can do to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion using the American Elasma Bank Society for a case study. I was wondering if you could share with our listeners from your positionality what we should expect of scientific institutions in this context. Um, yeah, I think there's a, uh, there's historically scientific societies, university staffs, like, um, or university faculty anyway, um, people kind of in the, like, you know, what's considered the, the upper reaches of the, uh, the science field. They've been people that have historically had the most access to the money to pay off student loans, you know, the, the time to be able to go and study at university and, and that kind of stuff. And that, uh, that ended up resulting in a very, like, you know, relatively wealthy, like white male demographic. Um, and that gets, that gets reflected in, um, even how like science is done. Like there was a really fascinating paper that was put out by, um, it was led by Katie Lyons that looked specifically at shark research, like from the research perspective and the, uh, the kinds of things, um, about like reproductive biology, sexual selection and things like that in, in sharks that have not been looked at because probably because the, uh, you know, it's been largely a, uh, a male and white, um, demographic looking at it. Like they just didn't, you know, they weren't necessarily being outwardly malicious, but they just didn't think to look at that, look at it that way. And, um, I think as, you know, a thing I noticed when I started going to society meetings like AES, AFS, things like that, is that like the younger generations were a lot more diverse. And then it was kind of like they would get to the postdoc level and then like kind of drop off in a lot of cases. So it was, uh, you know, trying to trying to sustain that um, all the way up through is kind of the way to is one of the more effective ways to make change is that you actually get people outside of those historical demographics into the upper level positions, um, they're bringing their own experiences in. they're able to think about things in a way that like, you know, the people that have historically been there maybe aren't. Um, and I think the more perspectives you have going in, um, into a research context, the better the research is going to be, uh, cause you're looking at it from more different angles. And it's just like the decent thing to do is just treat each other better. But <laughs> it's, um, if you really need like a cold justification, it's like, well, science is better when you have more, the ability to look at it from more angles. Absolutely. 
So the toughest part is over. You've successfully run the gauntlet of my questions, and now we get to hear your final five. So this is a group of five last questions that each guest who joins us here on the Fisheries Pod get asked. And I think the first one likely goes without saying, but this one is, what is your favorite fish? <laughs> uh, we've, we've covered that ground well. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your favorite memory from your career so far? Oh, man, there's a lot of a lot of really good ones. Um I mean, just probably, probably overall, just the people I've met, like people I've gotten a chance to collaborate with, um, you know, do field work with, uh, meet at conferences, that kind of stuff. Like it's been, um, probably one of the most rewarding parts of my career is just like all the different types of people I get to meet and interact with. That's awesome. So I love asking my guests this because it seems like they're all already doing it, but what is your dream job? Uh, it's more or less what I'm doing right now, I guess. Um, you know, it's, uh, my current job is quite a bit more data analysis oriented than some of the things I was doing during grad school, but you know, I still get out still get to tag fish, you know, five-year-old me, I think would still be pretty happy with my career choices. That's awesome. That's the goal is if five-year-old me. <laughs> yeah. I got to impress five-year-old job. <laughs> That's awesome. So if money was not an issue, what is a project that you would love to work on? I mean, this is how I tell people when they're getting, when they're getting started in research that like, you know, you like being in research if you keep coming up with more work to do. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, there are a lot of things that I would love to, to keep following up on. Um, I mean, I've got a bunch of stuff still lingering from the days I was working in North Carolina. We had started some follow-up projects on the, uh, the kind of climate shifted bull sharks we accidentally found down there. Um, which we didn't even get into in this interview. Um, but <laughs> so we had some follow-up projects with that looking at like, you know, their genetic relationships and their, um, their, uh, their diet and stuff like that. And, um, some of that ended up getting, um, shut down because we started getting rolling on it and like getting to the point where we could send samples to collaborators right as COVID hit mm-hmm. and closed everything down. Um, some of it was still able to move forward. Um, I did get some, uh, some genetic samples to my, my colleague, Toby Daly Angle down at, um, Florida tech. And she's found some really interesting stuff in terms of how the North Carolina sharks are related to other sharks. Wow. Um, so some of that's still moving forward, but I mean, there's like a bunch of follow-up studies on that, that I've wanted to do for a while, probably get more into like some, some coast wide species distribution modeling. Like I did with, uh, with dusky sharks and some other coastal species still need to Still need to do the models for those ones. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of really fascinating shark questions in Nova Scotia as well, especially like, you know, as I spend more time here and, you know, no disrespect to the the white sharks, but, you know, there are like dozens of other species in like Atlantic Canadian waters um, and not that much as research attention has been paid to them. So it's, uh, you know, things like, you know, what are the what are the, the like poor beagles up to? What are the blue sharks doing? What's the do- what's the dogfish up to? Um, always the question. <laughs> always, always. It all comes back to dogfish. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, I mean, kind of my experiences in North Carolina got me very fascinated with um, highly migratory species and how they react to changing environments. So things like climate change, I mean, in the open ocean environment, you don't have any real physical barriers. It's not like they have to like navigate over a river or over some mountains or something like that. The things that limit species distributions for things like sharks that can readily move around long distances are things like temperature ranges, food availability, salinity ranges, that kind of stuff. And those are all things that are in huge flux uh, under climate change. So, I mean, I've still got some some sharks that I tagged in the South and the Mid-Atlantic um, that still have active tags, and I'm just waiting for them to, to start showing up in Nova Scotia waters 
Yeah, just like the idea that you have these species that can shift into like entirely new ego regions because it got warm that summer. Finally, if there was one point or principle that you would like listeners to take away from hearing you speak, what would that be? Um, I think it's probably that uh, that collaboration is key. You know, don't, don't be afraid to uh, to think outside of the box as far as like who you might collaborate with as well. So, I mean, it's always like, like I mentioned before, research is better when there are more perspectives coming into it. And like, I've always been really positively rewarded with, um, you know, bringing extra people in. Like I, I say, you get some people that get really protective of their data or of their, um, of their, their research group or something like that. They want to make sure like they're getting the credit for it. But, you know, a, a paper that has me as one of the authors that has a hundred authors is this takes up the same amount of space on my CV as a paper where I'm the only author. So mm-hmm. And it's oftentimes going to be a much more like thorough and rewarding like research project as well. So I think it's, uh, you know, I think in some cases people need to get past the mindset that like it's a zero sum game that if you're if somebody else is getting the attention, you're getting less and realize that there's a lot of there's a lot of power to be had in doing research collaboratively. Um, And in some cases, the only way to answer some of these big questions. Well, Dr. Bangley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure to learn more about your research and some of the fascinating projects that you've worked on. And I'm sure our listeners will be just as intrigued as I was. If people want to learn more about you and what you do, how should they go about doing so? Um, well, these, uh, unfortunately, I haven't blogged that much in the past couple of years, but the um, uh, the Twitter is still active. Um, it's at SpineyDag. Um, and then I've got an Instagram that I'm still figuring out what exactly I'm doing with it. Um, so it's an odd little mix of... It's an odd little mix of Nova Scotia weather and some music stuff and then some science stuff as well. And that's uh, at Dogfish Walker on Instagram. That's hilarious. I love it. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email through feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream us from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or thefisheriespodcast.com. Don't forget that you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some of our Fisheries Podcast merch available on Teespring. I'm Reed Sutherland. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, collaboration is key.